if people kind of speak this morning, but you know, that's, that's what we want. We want more and more people involved in our Sunday morning service, uh, sharing and talking about what God is doing in their hearts and in the lives of others. Uh, I want to begin, so when I was in, when I was in seminary, I took, a, I took a preaching class, and by far, that was probably the most helpful class. Uh, my sermons prior to the preaching class, it's a good thing I don't think they were recorded. Um, but I remember I was, I was reading through a, a book uh, titled Preaching by John MacArthur, and in this book, he talks about um, what it looks like to preach, and he's, he's helping pastors know very much what happens in, in a church, and so he describes his church, and so he says, my people come with a spiritual thimble every week, and he says, they come, and that's how much of God's word that they want, and so he says, I will, I will fill their spiritual thimble up so it's overflowing. And he said, then when they heading out to the parking lot, they will trip and they will spill that thimble and all of that truth will go right back onto the ground. And his point was, when we gather, so often we don't actually want much of God's word. We might only want just a very little bit. And as we hear that, we often are not listening to apply it to ourselves but we're listening to maybe either apply it to someone else, or as soon as we hit that parking lot, um, we're thinking lunch, we're thinking what we got to do the rest of the day, and we never come back to the truth that we had heard that morning. And so as we begin this morning, I, I just want to pose the question, how much truth do you want today? And when you're coming, are, are you wanting just a thimble or, you know, like those Home Depot five-gallon buckets? Like what, are you, what are you hoping to, to, to have? And then what are you going to be doing with it? I mean, I think if we're honest, we all know that there's so many times that we are just spacing out either during the message or right after the message. Or we're thinking, oh, man, I'm so glad this person is here that they can hear this message. Have you ever done that? You're like, oh, man, if only they will apply this. And you're not thinking at all for yourself. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, when we come, we're coming to listen to God's word. And I just pray that we would think deeply about that and be ready to hear and to receive, that we would humbly be more and more transformed to the image of Christ. And so there's three things I just want to say as we dig into this text as a means of preparation. Number one, this text has a sense of urgency to it. Three times we're going to hear the word today. And the word today is going to mean today we need to apply this text. And regardless of what you do, you will apply the message of this text, either rightly or wrongly. The text is also meant, number two, to keep us... Bill, do you get all that recorded? That's perfect, man. That's perfect. I don't even know what to do now. What, what's that? Uh, remember, you, you guys like remember summer camp? We love Jesus. Yes, we do. How about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We start shouting that back and forth. and So, so on that note... Um, that really just, just tees up this next, you know, entry point. 
this text is meant to keep us out of hell. Like it is. Like as we come through this text, which written to a church, to professing believers, he's saying you need to apply this so you'll experience the very blessings of God. Because if you don't, you will go down a road that will lead to hell. Number three, the text will show the necessity of being with the church. We've said this before. You guys know this. Uh, church is not a country club. Don't just send your money and show up when you want. But we're a committed group of believers who have been spiritually made alive by the blood of Christ, given the Holy Spirit to direct us, to guide us, that we would exist for the glory of God and for the good of one another. And so what we're going to see is that all three of these, this urgency, this message to keep us persevering in the faith, and the necessity of the church can kind of come together in one sentence. The Christian community is the means of grace that God has given us today that we would persevere in our faith. And that's what I want us to see is that the church, brothers and sisters, those in this room are the very means of grace God uses in your life and in my life, in our life, to keep us in the faith. And so uh, with that, let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and stand. We stand here because this word comes from God. And we do so simply as a means of honoring Him, reminding ourselves that this word is inspired by God for our good and his glory. Verse 7, all the way to the end of the chapter. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who, were, who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. God, God, your word is so precious. It is so good. And Lord, I pray that we have come today with five-gallon buckets ready to receive your word and to be changed and transformed more into the image of your son. I pray that we would humbly listen to this word your spirit would work in our hearts, encouraging and correcting and refining us in however you deem necessary. I pray that we would look with new and fresh eyes on the gathering of the church and the beauty of family. 
those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, that we are brothers and sisters, and that we would see, affirm, and acknowledge the need of others to speak truth into our life. Lord, bless this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Still thinking about them yelling downstairs. That was just, that was pretty good. Don't you just kind of want to yell back like sporadically throughout the service now? <laughs> All right. First thing we got to see. Uh, today, God is speaking to us. We just got to see that right here in, um, in the first verse that we have, verse 7, we see, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, we have said throughout the t- our time in Hebrews, Hebrews is just is this incredible book. It really teaches us how to read our Bibles. And so here, as the author is now going to quote um, from verses 7 through 11, a passage from Psalm 95, this passage was written by David. We know that because in chapter 4, verse 7, he's going to tell us it was written by David. But notice who the author ultimately attributes this message to. It's the Holy Spirit. Hear this. Man, man wrote God's word. Man is the one who physically had a pen in his hand and wrote it out. But according to God's word, what we understand is that ultimately it is God who inspired man to write only that which he deemed to be written. This is why when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read, all scripture is breathed out by God. So ultimately, we understand that this book, 66 books here that make up the Bible, is not originating out of the heart and the mind of man, but ultimately it comes from God. This is why we can say all 66 books come together to tell the perfect story of salvation. That God created man, man sinned, and then through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, he redeems man that we would once again live with him for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. It's because God is the author of this book that a book written over 1,600 years, there is perfect unity throughout the book. It is because God is the author of this book that is inerrant and infallible, and is because God is the author that it's applicable to us today. Even though David wrote this at about 1,000 B.C., it was applicable to the first century church, the, uh, to the church of Hebrews, and it's applicable to us also. Um, now think about that. When you pick up this word, God is speaking. To you. Do you know that? Like, it, when, when you actually get that, it, it makes those comments just seem so ludicrous when people say, I just want a fresh word. I just wish God was speaking to us today. It's like, well, I got 66 books. 66 books right here that God is speaking today to you that we would know who he is, what he has done for us, who we are. What our problem is because of sin. What the solution is in Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, do you read God's word knowing that he's speaking to you? And I think if we're honest, there's so many times we don't, right? Like we can all be like, yes, of course I know that. And we can all give the Christian Jesus answer. 
But in reality, we know there's so many times on a Sunday morning, we can listen, we can close it, and we're like, lunch. Or whatever the to-do list is, like digging a hole. <laughs> I dug a lot of holes lately in my yard. Some of you know that. Um, digging another hole today. Uh, or, or when you're sitting down in the morning, you read God's word, and you just check the box, and you close it, and you go off about your day, and you're not thinking, I just listened to God. The one who created and sustained everything. The one who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. The one who has demonstrated his love through the death of his son. He just spoke through his word to me. And so often we just don't think that. And so I just want to remind us today God is speaking to us. In his word and every time you open this word God is speaking. So just, just remember that. Just pause even now, just pause and go, God, I just want to hear your word. And so the question then would be, well, what's he saying? What is he telling us? And today, the main thing that we are going to see is that we must persevere in our faith. Today, we must persevere in our faith. Um, in fact, the verse right before where we started, verse 6, emphasizes this. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this, And we are his house, if indeed we, are, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If you remember last week for Easter, we preached that passage, and the word house refers to the very people of God. So he's saying we are God's people if we hold fast our confidence, if we persevere in our faith. Or he repeats himself in verse 14 of our text today. He says, for we come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Now he's not saying you'll earn your salvation if you keep having faith. He's not saying that. He's saying you are saved and you have confidence because you have a persevering faith. Real faith perseveres to the end. Now, perseverance is a theme all throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, later on in the book, in chapter 10, verse 36, we're going to read this. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Later in chapter 12, verse 12, he's going to say, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's going to be talking to them like, you're running a race. He says, your hands are drooping, your, weak, your knees are weak. Keep going. Press on. Remember, the church has been persecuted. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've lost their property. It's been taken from them. They're debating right now, do we keep on in the faith? Do we believe in Jesus or do we abandon the faith? Do we go back to Judaism where there's not going to be any persecution? So that's what they're wrestling with. And so they're tired. They're worn out. And so he's encouraging them Run the race. Pick up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Real faith perseveres to the end. And so um, we see this all throughout God's word. We see perseverance all throughout God's word. In fact, we could say Noah persevered in his faith as he built a boat in the middle of dry land, knowing that God is going to bring a flood that will flood the earth. Abraham persevered in his faith when God said, I want you to leave your family, leave your homeland, I want you to leave everything, I want you to go to a far land away that I will bless you, with you, bless you and your descendants with. 
Moses persevered in his faith that he left Egypt because he counted Christ far greater than the treasures of Egypt. Daniel persevered in his faith even when it meant that he would be thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego persevered in their faith even when it meant they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. When we come into the New Testament, we see Peter persevered in his faith in Acts chapter 3, 4, 5. Well, I think in actually all of those. But I think in chapter 5 where he's then arrested and he's beaten for his faith. All throughout the Bible, we see that real faith is a faith that perseveres. In fact, a definition behind perseverance of the faith could be perseverance is faith that trusts in God's grace regardless of the situation. Perseverance is faith that trusts in God's grace. You're going to trust that God's going to continue to give grace in whatever situation you are in that will strengthen you, that will meet whatever needs you have, so that you can continue to trust in him, regardless of the situation. Um, and so we might then ask, well, why then is perseverance so important? Why is he urging us to persevere? Why is it real faith perseveres? What's at stake if we don't persevere? And that's really what the author's addressing here. This is going to be the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews. There's many warnings, and these warnings are meant to make you uncomfortable as a church. They're meant to stir in your heart. They're meant to press into you. That you feel like your toes just got stepped on. And so two things that are at stake. Number one, if you don't press on, your hearts will grow hard. We see that in verse 8 where he says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Number two, if we don't persevere, you will fall away from God. Look at verses 11 through 12. He says, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now we'll look more at the rest of God in chapter 4, but rest Our rest in God is not first and foremost a physical thing, but it is the spiritual reality of being saved in Jesus Christ and experiencing all the blessings in Jesus. We will see that as we move on into chapter 4. But he also says, persevere so you do not fall away. To fall away means that you are not saved and you will experience the judgment and the eternal wrath of God. Now, I imagine the author is thinking, someone in the church is going to be like, really? Like, really, we have to just totally persevere? Like, like what happens if we really don't persevere? Is it really that bad? And so, in order to help the church understand this, in order to illustrate it, he quotes Psalm 95, which is what we have from verses 7 through 11. If we go back, we see in verse 8 that Israel's, Israel had a hard heart. They rebelled against God. In verse 10, we read that God was angry with them because of their hard hearts, because they continued to rebel against him, and he swore, they will not enter my rest. So the question is, is what is he referring to? What does Psalm 95 refer to? And so we're going to do a little recap on the story of Israel because this is talking about Numbers 13 and 14. And so we'll we'll kind of help us all get there. But if you remember, 
Israel is, uh, is the people of God in the Old Testament. And so Israel is enslaved to Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. And so God appoints a man named Moses to go and to free the people, to lead them out of Egypt. And he does that by bringing about 10 plagues upon the Egyptians, ultimately killing the firstborn of every Egyptian. So Pharaoh finally sends out Israel, says, get out. So Israel leaves Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, where then God will part the Red Sea, and they will walk across on dry ground. Of course, by that time, Pharaoh's now pretty ticked off. He realized what has happened. He says, we need to go get the Israelites back. We need them to do our slave labor. So he gets all of his army. He goes after them. And after Israel goes to the Red Sea, so Pharaoh comes after them through the Red Sea, which, I mean, I just think that would be kind of strange. Big walls of water going, we'll just go through there also. Um, But he does. And then God brings down those walls of water upon the entire Egyptian army, crushing them and wiping them out, utterly destroying that nation. But then Israel continues, eventually they will make it to Mount Sinai, where God will reveal himself to Israel. He will descend upon this mountain in a massive dark cloud. There will be lightning, there will be trumpets, there will be thunder, and the entire mountain shakes at the presence of this God. This has just been an amazing scene. And God then gives the Ten Commandments, he gives them their law. As Israel continues to travel through the wilderness to the promised land, God will provide water through them through a rock. He will provide manna for them every single morning. They will come out and there will be bread just there waiting for them to gather and to eat. He will destroy enemy nations before them. All of this God is doing so that his people would know his strength and his might and his power and his grace and his wonder and that there is no God like this God that every promise that he has made he will fulfill and so then on the brink of going into the promised land they're on the other side of the Jordan God tells Moses all right send 12 guys out into the promised land have them check it out for 40 days and then and then they'll come back and report so that's what he does and 10 of those spies come back with a negative report and they they look at the size of of the people who are in the promised land. They're like, these guys are huge. They're massive. There's no way we can take them. They're they're too strong for us. No way. So they come back and say, guys, we can't do this. And then Joshua and Caleb come back. They're two spies. They're like, guys, we got this. God is with us. He's given us the land. And so in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 through 9, this is what happens. It says, the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Japunah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. 
If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with them. Do not fear them. So do you know what Israel did? They feared them. They listened to the ten guys and they said, these guys are the, the inhabitants of this land are too strong. And so, God then comes and appears before them. And he says, because you do not believe in me, because you fear man more than you fear me, you will not go into the promised land. And for every day that you were in the, that these spies went there, that will be a year in which you will wander through the wilderness and so for 40 years, Israel will wander through the wilderness, all to the point where 40 years later, God will bring them in, and only Joshua and Caleb, of 600,000 men that came out of Egypt, two will enter the promised land. Two. Just think that through. Why? Because they rebelled, because they did not believe in God. And so the author is warning the church. He's telling them, if Israel was not allowed to go into the promised land and experience the rest and the blessings of God. After all the miracles they had seen, how much more will you not experience the rest and the blessings of God if you reject the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our apostle and high priest? He says, you think Israel had it bad? You will have it far worse than Israel. So that's the warning that he's bringing for the church. Now you might say, wait a minute, can we really do that? Can you take just an Old Testament Israelite story and apply it to the church like that? Is that even possible? Or is the author just ripping a text out of the Old Testament and just making a proof text here? Well, this is exactly how we apply the Old Testament. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6, this is what Paul says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, now he's going to refer to the Old Testament Israelites, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, referring to the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So why do we have the story of Israel? That we might not desire evil as they did. I know reading the Old Testament sometimes is a little bit hard. I know sometimes when we get in the Old Testament, we're going, what am I reading about? What is happening? Why am I reading about these people and their rebellion and all the things that they're doing? God has given us the story of Israel so we would know what it looks like to believe in God and what it looks like to not believe in God today. They're an example for us. Sometimes good and sometimes very, very bad example of what it looks like to live. And so he's using this story to drive home to the point to this church. Look, if you turn your back on Jesus right now, you will not enter the rest of God. You will not 
experience his blessing, but you will fall from God. You will have a hard heart. You will rebel against him and to suffer his wrath. And in verses 16 to 18, he's going to ask a series of questions. And these questions serve as a means of illustrating the evil heart, the rebellious heart of Israel. And at the same time, they inform us of what it looks like to have real faith in God. So if you look at verses 16 through 18, we're going to learn three things about what faith looks like. Number one, we see that real faith is not a single event. Look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So here we have, we have, we have Israel. They all experienced the event of the Exodus. They experienced the event of the Red Sea. They experienced the event of Mount Sinai. They experienced the event of manna coming down. They experienced the event of God appearing in a cloud and a pillar of fire. And yet... None of them will enter into the promised land. Faith is not about an event, but it's about a transformation. There are so many people that I know, and I know that you know them too, and you might be one of them. That you put your salvation, your trust, in the hope of a prayer, in the hope of raising a hand, in the hope of walking an aisle, and the hope of goosebumps that you had 30 years ago, and yet you've never lived like Jesus. You've never obeyed him. And there are people today that will say, I know I'm a Christian. Yes, I haven't been a part of church for 30 years. I don't read my Bible. But way back then, I was baptized. I raised my hand. I'm saved, right? Well, if it was about an event, then all of Israel would be saved. But it's not about an event. Real faith is about a transformation that takes place in your heart. It's going from death to life that we would now live persevering in our faith for the very glory of God. That's number one. Number two, real faith overcomes unbelief. Look at verse 17. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You know, when you read the story of Israel uh, going through the book of Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's one word that really stands out. There's a lot of words, but there's one word that really stands out that just describes the people of Israel. It's the word grumbled. They grumbled. You remember that? You remember like right after they come through the, the Exodus and the Red Sea? You know the first thing they do? I think it's right after Moses teaches them the song in Exodus 15. They grumble. We need water. We need food. It's like, did you not just see what God did? Pretty sure he can provide food and water. At every moment, they grumble. God will do some miraculous work. They grumble. They grumble. They grumble. They grumble. And if you're like me, you're kind of reading the Old Testament going, really? Like, do you not see who God is? And yet, we do the very same thing. We grumble about things. We grumble about life. We grumble what we don't have. We grumble what we should have. You know, the thing about grumbling, grumbling is a sign of unbelief. It's the fruit of a heart that does not believe and trust in God. We grumble when we don't think God is sufficient, when we don't think he's good enough, when we don't think he's great enough. So when we're looking here at verse 16, who was it? Or where, who were those 
I'm getting confused here. Verse 17, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? It was those who sinned. It was those who continually did not believe. How do we know they didn't believe? Because they just kept grumbling the entire time about God. But real faith overcomes unbelief. Now, if you're here, we struggle with faith at times, right? None of us have perfect faith. None of us are just walking through all the trials, all the pains, all the things that we go through in life going, man, I got this. God is good. Just no problem. I mean, there's times we do, do, we do go through trials like that, and praise God. But there's a lot of times we wrestle, and we get tired, and we get weak, and we need to be encouraged. We need others to build, build us up. And what we learn, though, is that real faith will continue to persevere. Look at that word verse in verse 10 of Hebrews 3. He says, Israel will always, always goes astray in their heart. That word always means they persisted in their unbelief. They just kept persisting. There was no repentance of it. But real faith, yes, we will struggle at times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, man, when you were saved, just life gets easy. Faith is a highway, and it's just, you know, cruise control. There are times we struggle, and we'll look in a few moments about how do we maintain faith during difficulties, but real faith overcomes unbelief. Number three, real faith is a journey of obedience. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Do you want to know the areas that you don't believe God, that you don't believe in about God? It's the areas that you're disobedient. You see, Israel did not believe in God, or, and the evidence is that they did not obey him. They didn't go into the promised land. The evidence is that they grumbled. The evidence is that they continue to want to go back to Egypt. The evidence is that everything that God called them to do, they did the opposite. God said, don't collect food, manna on the Sabbath. What they do? Let's go collect food on the Sabbath. Everything God said, don't do this. Well, I guess that's what we'll do. They continued to ignore. And listen, disobedience comes from a heart of unbelief. Every act of disobedience that you and I do is an area in which we're struggling to believe in God. And the areas that you disobey God are areas that we are beginning to harden our heart. That's why real faith It's a journey of obedience. We persist in our obedience over a long period of time. And so I just want to just pause and just think through, are there areas of disobedience in our life? Israel ignored it. And Israel got to the promised land, and there we see the fruit of their disobedience. They continued to persist in it, and therefore they did not enter the rest of God. And so we're, we're called to think right now, where are we being disobedient? The church of Hebrews is being disobedient and thinking we should fear man over God, and therefore we should abandon the faith. But where are you disobedient to God right now? Husbands, are you shepherding your wives? Are you shepherding your families? Or have you abandoned that role? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Are you building them up and encouraging them? Or are you not? Are you reading your Bibles? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you repenting of frustration, of anger, of impatience? Yeah, it's, it's a sin to do those things, but you know it's also sin to not repent of those things. Or do you just kind of say, look, we're in a fallen world, bad things happen, 
I'll be angry until Jesus returns. I mean, think about it. Like, so often we just kind of wipe our sins under the rug. It's like, well, you know, what do you expect? I'm human. As if that's an excuse for our sin. Because we kind of forget that humanity was actually made in the image of God. And in the beginning, humans didn't sin. So to sin is to be less than human, right? It's not about doing the purpose that God has called us to. Are you playing around with lust, with porn, with an immoral relationship? Thinking nobody knows. It's okay. Every day that you do that, your heart is hardening against God. Your heart is hardening every day. I'm watching a, I like YouTube. I love animal clips on YouTube. You like animal clips on YouTube? I mean, I can just watch those. I don't really care about anything else on YouTube, uh, but animal clips are just fun. I love, so I came across one the other day, and I don't think it's a zoo. I think it was actually some hotel in Vegas or something, but they had lions. I like lions. I think they're fun. And so uh, this guy climbs into the lion cage. And of course, when a guy climbs in the lion cage, what do you do? You break out your phone. You don't call someone. You're like, I've got to record this. And so the guy... Guy climbs in the lion cage and he looks at the lions and they just kind of sitting there chilling. So he, you know, takes a step closer, takes a step closer, and you can see this guy is in his right mind. Like he's very aware he's in the lion cage, and he's moving slowly. Gets up. I don't know why he chose the big one, like the big male, but he chose that one. Gets up and he reaches down. And he begins to pet it. He touches it. The lion kind of looks back. He stands up. And the lion goes back to his own thing, so the guy pets him again. And you're, you're just like watching this going, oh, man, this is not good. You're just waiting, waiting for something to happen. He reaches down again. He pets again. Nothing happens. So what does he do? He reaches down again. He pets again. It just keeps going. And you're like the anticipation's like building. And you know what's going to happen, right? Eventually, all of a sudden, the lion gets up. And he turns, and he just begins to maul this guy. And you hear screams, and you hear roars. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, what'd you think? Like, do we pity that guy? Like, honestly, when you watch that YouTube clip, do you go, oh, man, poor guy. Never saw it coming. <laughs> like, I mean, this is like the man-eating beast, right? It's made to kill other things. What did you think was going to happen? And what happens do you think? What do you think happens when we play with sin? Yeah, we just we just keep playing with it. We'll just keep playing, just keep petting, go, nobody knows. Only a few people know. Nothing really bad has happened. Probably nothing bad will happen. And our hearts just get harder and harder. And what this sin is doing, it's beginning to devour us and attack us. I want you to think, is there any areas of sin that you're just playing with right now? And you're thinking, I'm sure this is okay. I'm sure that nothing bad is going to happen. And at the same time, it's the same thing as the guy who's just petting the lion. There's going to come a moment, and you're going to feel it. You might, you might get all the way through this life right up until judgment day. You'll feel it then for sure. When God says, you will not enter my rest. You decided to persist in your unbelief. You have a hard heart. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, 
What about assurance of salvation? Like, like this isn't really applicable to us as Christians. Like, because once saved, always saved, right? Now, uh, Chris, next week, he's going to He's going to preach on the assurance of salvation because that's too much to get into today because he's actually not even addressing assurance of salvation. But I know it makes us all want to go there. Go, well, wait a minute. Is this really applicable to us? Don't we believe that once Christ has saved us that we are secure in his hand? And, and I'll tell you, I wholeheartedly believe in the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And at the same time, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. And this text is talking to the church, calling them brothers and sisters. If you don't turn from your sin, you will have a hard heart and you will not enter the rest of God. He's not trying to decipher who's saved and who's not saved. That's not his goal. His goal is to warn the church, look, if you go down this road, there's danger. There's a lion on this road and he will kill you. So what do we do? We demonstrate faith and we persevere in our faith. We repent of our sin and we continue to follow Christ. So next week we'll look more at assurance of salvation. But do not try to hide behind assurance of salvation and miss the application of this text. Because you'll do that. You'll say, oh, that's not applicable to me. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. As if the warnings in God's word written to the church are no longer applicable to you. So don't pit doctrines against one another. Does that make sense? This is written to the church. Brothers and sisters. So that they would wrestle with the sin that is going on in their heart. Paul never points us back to an event to say, I know I'm saved because of that. He always presses us to our present obedience. You want to know you're saved? Persevere in your faith. You want to know you're saved? Continue to trust in Christ today. Salvation is a transformation. It's not just an event. And so then the question then really brings us to, so how does this work? We have a church who's on the brink of having a hard heart and not entering the rest of God. You and I, we face sin every single day. Some of you, you're in the exact same place as this church here. You've been toying with sin. You've been wrestling with it. You have a hard heart. It's beginning to develop. So what do we do? How do we safeguard ourselves against this warning? How do we heed this warning? There's three things, at least from this text, that we can see. Number one, today we keep our eyes on Jesus. Today, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the very beginning verse. This is how we started off Easter. So if you were here, this should sound quite familiar. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, what? Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Listen, every day, we need to remind ourselves who we are in Jesus Christ. Every day day we need to remind ourselves if jesus is the apostle the one sent from god and our high priest the one who offered a sacrifice himself who he then rose from the grave three days later if that's true that changes everything and that will inform how i respond to every situation i am in we don't start with the problem we don't start with, okay, there's suffering here. This is what the church is doing. We're suffering. We're experiencing problems. How do we avoid this? 
The author is telling him, no, we start with Jesus. If Jesus is the Son of God who came to save us from our sins, how do we now respond to pain and suffering and persecution and trials? The first thing we must do is consider Jesus. And that is something we must do every single day, which is why I, and I advocate, I'm all about having our our Bible time in the morning, where it's a time where I can orient myself from the very beginning of the day and remind myself who I am in Jesus Christ and that he is my Lord and my Savior, and I am not God, and there is no other God that I serve. And I know some of you, uh, you get up quite early, and that makes it hard, so maybe you can do some type of mini Bible time or something in the car. But I just encourage you, waking up every morning, setting your course, reminding yourself, consider Jesus. Number two, (laughs) number three, number two, uh, we must examine ourselves. Today, we must examine ourselves. Look at chapter three, verse 12. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, examine yourself. Watch out. Is there anything in you of an evil, unbelieving heart? Look at yourself. Are you playing with sin? Are there areas that you're not believing? You, you want to know where you're sinning right now? Where are you grumbling? <laughs> Just go there. Israel did it. Made it pretty easy to see. Where do you grumble? Are you grumbling at your wife, your husband, your house, your family, your septic tank? That's where I grumble. I grumble a lot at my septic tank. Yeah, you laugh. You'll be at my house later digging. <laughs> Now I'm laughing. Uh, Where do you grumble? Where you grumble is the evidence of unbelief in your heart. We're called to examine ourselves. We do this regularly by reading God's word and by praying. And so listen, I know there's certain texts. There's certain texts that you just read and you're like, I don't know how to apply that. It's written about God's supremacy or his greatness or his glory that he reigns on high. You ever come across like some of those texts like Psalm 96? The splendor and majesty of our God and King. And you're like, cool. What's the application of that? Um, When you get to that, and you're reading about his supremacy, what you can do is go, do I live that way? Am I thinking that God is supreme, or am I denying that in any way in my life? Am I trusting in his promises, or do I think that I need to supply all the things that I need in my life? Am I upset for things that I don't have because I think I deserve them and thus I'm not trusting that God is good and he's great and he's glorious? So when you get to those texts, sometimes it's just looking at them going, am I living in accordance with Jesus as my king? Or am I trying to be king? Or am I fearing someone or something else? Lastly, today we must encourage one another. Look at verse 13. He says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word exhort means to come alongside. So he's saying you need other people in your life. Why? Because sin's deceitful. So what does that mean? You're not going to see it. Do you know that? Like beyond like the Jesus answer, do you know that? Like we all shake our head, yes, I know that. But do you know there's probably sin in your life right now that you just don't see? And there's probably someone else that does see it. Are you in relationship with other people 
who can speak truth into your life. And this is, I mean, this is one reason we do table groups, why Steve came up and spoke about table groups. And table groups, I mean, we eat, we love eating. We love eating. Uh, we love to eat with one another. But why? Because when we eat, we have conversation. And when we have conversation, what are we doing? We're listening to each other, hearing where each other are, knowing where we can pray for one another, hearing and seeing where we're struggling. So then we can begin applying God's truth to our hearts. But listen, if table group stops at, hey, really glad you had a great day, great week, and we don't press on, we're not doing the purpose of table groups. We don't come to tell other people how smart we are or to to make it look like we're all put together. We come so that we can be encouraged and corrected. And if you do not have people who can correct you and to speak truth into your life, then you have a hard heart. And you need to know that. Because you have, because sin is deceitful, it's deceitful for all of us. We need people in our life. You need me, and I need you. There's like a whole Barney song that goes on with that, right? But we need one another for the purpose of looking at you and going, did you see that? No, I didn't. We need that in one another, which is why it's so important that we gather together. Listen, the Sunday gathering is a necessity. We must gather because there's no virtual substitute for being with one another. We all know that so much of our communication is beyond language, right? We need to see each other. Hard to rebuke someone on Zoom. It's pretty hard. Hard to correct someone. Hard to encourage people on Zoom. Now, I get it. And, and like, we, we, I think we can press into this. COVID made stuff weird, right? Like, we all kind of took a break. It was like, okay, how do we gather? But listen, we must gather. And this is one means of gathering, but we must do smaller groups than this because this is not everything. Because I'm the only one talking right now, right? We all need to talk with one another. I need you to speak truth into my life. Because there's areas that I don't see. And guys, I encourage you, have men that can speak into your life. Women, have women that can speak into your life. Have people that you can open up to. So that we would see areas of hardness. Look, church is a means of grace. That we would persevere in our faith. There are Christians that feel lonely. You might be one of them here, and you feel lonely, you feel out of place, and you're going, man, I just wish I had people around me. That's what church is. This is why, listen, I, I love that all of you like to show up at like 10.05. <laughs> we start at 10. Um, but like, you know, and, and normally, like, we have six people in here at 10, and then like after like 10.08, there's like 150 people in here. Um, but I want to encourage you. We show up early, we stay late, because it's not about you. It's about how do we get to know each other? How do we build relationships? How do we encourage each other? Because you are the very means of grace that God has placed in other people's life to build them up and to encourage. And so I just want to encourage you, as much as you can, and I know we can't always be early, but be early, stay late, 
grow in relationships. Look to talk to people that you don't always talk with. And, and I'll say this. I, I think we do so much of that really well. If you're new here, uh, I don't even have to tell you this. You've already probably experienced the love of just God in this church. There is a blessing that God has done in this church that we do. We love one another. But we can't be satisfied and content with where we're at. So yet we love one another. Check the box. When you keep growing in that, pressing into each other more, loving each other, encouraging each other, that together we look forward to the day that Christ returns. Um, look, Christianity is not about being a lone ranger. There are many Christians who think they do not need to be a part of church. That absolutely makes no sense. Jesus saves us, and our identity now is to be a part of the body of Christ. If you do not think you need the body, then you do not need Jesus. At least so you think. We are saved to be a part of of the body. You cannot be a Christian and abandon the church. And I know you know people like that. I know that you know people who are wrestling with the COVID stuff saying, well, I don't know when I should go back and on. I realize that things were strange, but we need to press into our friends and encourage them. We must gather because if we're not gathering, we're not experiencing the very grace that God has given us to build us up, to encourage us, and to point out Areas in our life where we are trusting in things other than God. So we need to come back always to the first point. God is speaking to us. That's the point of this message, is that God is the one speaking. This isn't me, this isn't me saying, or Timberline saying, hey, community is important. Do table groups because it's fun. You'll get good food. I mean, that's true. But we do table groups because it's in God's word that we need community. That's why we do it. So I encourage you, be a part of table groups. If you want more information, talk to Steve and Nancy. Um, we're going to pray. Uh, there's, a lot more, <laughs> there's so much more we could say here. Uh, and we're going to take communion. And we're going to celebrate the fact that Christ has died and risen to save a body. That we would press each other and encourage each other in the faith each day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for saving us by the blood of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that you have not left us, but you've given us your spirit. And your spirit works in the church so that the church would be the means in which the church would press on in the faith. And I pray that you, I pray that today you would prick us all in our heart where there are areas of unbelief where there are areas that we think that we do not need to be corrected, where there are areas that we think that we do not need other people to speak into, I just pray that we would see that your church is a means of grace given to us so that we would run the race that you have given together with other believers, looking to your son Jesus with joy, awaiting the day that he will return. Lord, if there is anyone in here who just realizes that they have been playing with sin, that they have crawled into the lion cage. Lord, I pray that you would bring that to their attention, that they repent of that today, that they would confess that to their friends, that they confess it to the church, that we'd encourage them and to help them continue to run the race. May we not be lone rangers. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. In your name, amen.